every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week or so, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me just as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so, actually. Um... And with me tonight, my very first guest for the very first show, uh, Nikki Stafford, author of Bite Me, the unofficial guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as a plethora of books and series guides for shows such as Angel, Lost, Sherlock, Alias, and Xena. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much for being my very first victim. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for asking me. Uh, so just... Give the listeners and and me uh, a brief idea of like your history with Buffy. When did you first become aware of it? When did you become a fan? Um, I came to it in a sort of a backwards kind of way. So it had been on for the first season and a half. So it was midway through season two. My sister-in-law was a big fan of the show, uh, but she watched a lot of weird television. <laughs> However, she also, she got me into Xena and the two of us were watching Xena all the time. And I wrote the book on Xena. And then when I was trying to figure out what my next book would be, a friend of mine said, you should totally do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He said, I've never watched a single episode but I hear it's really <laughs> and I thought really and and then I watched the first episode and I was completely hooked walked right into the publisher's office the very next day and said I want to do a book on this and uh and they said well you're gonna have to convince us of that one because that sounds like a really stupid title and <laughs> So I really had to convince them, and uh, the there were two publishers at the time, and, and the second publisher went and watched a couple episodes and called me and said, this show is genius, absolutely, let's do it. And so I actually, even though it's it's interesting, there's the whole, in academia, the fan scholar scholar fan debate that has often been a joke now with me, that everyone seems to bring it up around me for some reason, so I'm just going to get rid of it right off the top of this podcast, <laughs> The idea that I am a fan scholar because I would approach it as a fan first, whereas acad academics are uh, scholar fans because they would be approaching as a scholar first, whereas technically 
I actually did approach it as a scholar first. I wasn't a fan before I started writing about it. And then I became just incredibly enamored of the show. I bombed through the first season probably in two days. From that point on, so I, I that brought me up to uh, Killed by Death. And then it was on hiatus at the time. So I was actually watching it in that hiatus at the end of season two. And then um, I Only Have Eyes for You is the first live episode I watched. And from that point on, I watched it live every week. Okay. Wow. So yeah, that uh, fan scholar, scholar fan thing is a thing. I, I had planned on asking you that question, but very good. You, you uh, cut me I'm off the pass. I always have lots to say, <laughs> <laughs> but I figured everyone's going to make fun of me. So I'm going to get it out of the way. <laughs> All right. Um, well, so I guess that brings me to the dreaded spoiler warning uh, portion of the show. Conversations with dead people. Uh, is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, we're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So uh, mm -hmm. for listeners, I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once uh, that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. Uh, it's absolutely worth it, and obviously uh, you'll get so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So please uh, go do that. Go watch. Uh, we'll be here when you get back, I promise. So uh, with all of that out of the way, Nikki, if you're ready, uh, let's go to work. So, yay. yay. So tonight, uh, in the very first episode, obviously we have to go back to the beginning. We're going to be talking about um, episodes 101, Welcome to the Hellmouth and 102 The Harvest, uh, these are technically their uh, separate episodes, but when they originally aired on March 10th, 1997, uh, they were aired back to back as sort of a one, two hour premiere. So uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth uh, was, well, they're both written by Joss Whedon, uh, series creator Joss Whedon. Uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth is directed by Charles Martin Smith, which I find hilarious just because I know him. I know he's a director, but I know him as an actor first. And he, he will always be. I know him from the criminally underappreciated Disney film, Never Cry Wolf. So it just always blows my mind that he was the director of the very first episode of Buffy. Um, and then The Harvest. It's amazing, it's amazing that it wasn't Joss Whedon was the director right. of the first episode, right? Right, like... right. Um, I think he, he must. Uh, I don't think he directs for a little while. I think he must be kind of working himself up to it. But uh, I don't know. Uh, and then The Harvest is directed by John T. Kretschmer, who I believe goes on to direct uh, several more episodes of the series. I don't think Charles Martin Smith ever comes back, but at any <laughs> rate. Um, so uh, you you already said that you got your start on the series uh, like after it had already premiered. Um, do we have anything to say? Do we have words to say about like the original film and the unaired pilot? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the original film is, I mean, it's such a, a difficult part of the canon because it was, you know, it was this idea that Joss Whedon had brought it to a big studio. The studio took it and the director, actors, studio itself really started to whip it into something that it was never intended. So they took it as a straight ahead comedy. He has said in a lot of interviews that, um, that Donald Sutherland had a major influence over things being changed. And he sort of came to loathe him over it. <laughs> and, uh, 
and that it was meant to, it was just kind of a stupid high school romp comedy. And at the very end, it tried to be more of a serious, this poor girl has the weight of the world on her shoulders, but it's sort of too little too late. It comes right at the end and it's, it's, a, it's just kind of a dumb thing. And yet you feel like you are compelled to watch it. And frankly, uh, Paul Rubens yes. <laughs> is a vampire and he's so good. And it's so worth watching just for him because he's so over the top as Paul Rubens always is. I mean, you wouldn't want anything less, but uh, it, it's, and you have to watch it <clears throat> just for, it's not really continuity because I mean, she's a senior in the movie and then yeah. also she's junior in the show. However, she burns down the school and that's where we all begin at the beginning of the TV show where it's finally back in his hands and he can weave that drama through the comedy and he finds the perfect balance that was never in that film. Right. Yeah. So I, I saw the film, uh, I believe it was 92 when it yeah. was in theaters. So I saw it in theaters and, um, I, I, I have virtually no memory of the film itself. I don't believe I have ever revisited it. <laughs> but uh, so seriously, my only memory of that film is the the memory I think most people have of it. It is the Paul Rubens death scene. Um, it's really the only reason to, to watch the film. It really is. But And you uh, know what? You can go on YouTube and just find the scenes. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. And that's all. That's right there. Yeah. That's really all you need. Um, and then I, to this day, I have never seen the unaired pilot. I know that it is out there to be seen. I don't think it's on any of the like DVD releases or, no. or any of that, but it is available. I know many, many people have seen it. I myself have not. <laughs> have you ever watched it? I have. I, I, a friend of mine who actually worked at the studio had a, a, a copy of it somehow that was circulating around the studio. And I got a copy of it that way on bootleg and it's it's rather shocking to be honest there there are some things that are identical like to the pilot and some there's a different willow and right. and so to see a different girl playing willow and i always watch it with some you know almost sadness or sympathy that you know this for to be the one cast member that was <laughs> ousted and someone else brought in and with that he basically looked at her and went no, you're just not right you know um and she's she's actually quite good as Willow. Just she's not the Willow that we know. There's something missing where you see Allison Hannigan and you in, in that very first episode and you instantly want to give her a hug and take her home like a lost puppy, you know? Yeah. And the other one was just sort of like, Oh my god, oh my god. And there was a lot of that. And but that was what she was told to play. Yeah. You know, and so she didn't seem to have like first spoiler which i'm going to be as vague as possible but <laughs> that where we end up with willow i can never imagine this one having <laughs> got gotten to that point like she just didn't convey that but that wasn't the other thing that's really funny is that there's if you're watching it it's hilarious because there's no sound effects and so <laughs> when you're watching, when they go and they, really there's no special effects so when they dust a vampire <laughs> it's like it's done in a three shot so first they like go eh, and then it cuts to a shot of like a shriveled thing and then it cuts to a shot of dust and then it cuts to a shot of nothing and it's really really <laughs> funny because it's so bad it looks like a high school production um oh, it's really worth watching just for the hilarity <laughs> so so that actress's name is riff reagan i believe yes. is how that's pronounced and i i don't I, I'm not aware if she's ever done anything else. Oh, I know. I don't um, think so. Yeah. So, so I do need to see that someday just because so many of, of uh, my friends and, and fellow fans have 
watched yeah. it, and I never have. It's also interesting to note that Stephen Tobolowski was originally cast as Principal Flutie, and I love Stephen Tobolowski. I am a I'm a Tobo fan from way back. So <laughs> as much as I love Ken Lerner, who is the the oh, I love the him. Principal Flutie that we have, I I will always kind of miss having not seen the unaired pilot. I will always kind of miss the idea of Stephen Tobolowski as Buffy's principal. But yeah. Exactly. Though they made up for it in the Goldbergs, I think. Isn't, isn't he on the Goldbergs as the he, principal? He is. He is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we got him eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So that's... Ken Lerner, by the way, is awesome. He like, is. So good. And even, even when it first aired, like the only, I knew Ken Lerner from uh, Happy Days <laughs> when oh, I yeah. was kid he was always on that show and so that's where I instantly recognized him but he's so funny as Flutie and he really is that um there's so many times I'm sure we'll get into this a lot more in the in the first episode where Joss Whedon leads us into what looks like a high school show cliche and then upends it you know and so the cliche of a principal going nothing you've done in your past matters and ripping it you know the all of her reports up and saying none of this matters and then wait wait you burn down the school and then he's madly trying to tape it all back together (laughs) wait a minute it matters now it matters you know don't see that part coming usually and so he just undercuts every expectation and and Flutie is is a great version of that yeah so um my my first admission so obviously i rewatched these episodes for the purposes of this podcast and i i debated with myself if i was going to just keep going and like rewatch the entire first season before you and i spoke just so Uh i'd have a little fresher perspective i have not so over the year as i said at the top over the years i've probably watched every episode multiple times i've just never done a front to back rewatch Right. Um, so I have vague ideas of some of the stuff coming in the immediate future, like the next few episodes. I do know, and and again, this is a spoiler podcast. I do know that Flutie is not long for this world, but I don't remember how long we get him. I don't remember how long it is before <laughs> Ken Lerner departs our, the Buffyverse. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I do love him as that character. He is hilarious. Um, yeah. So let's see. What exactly is it, uh, before we start getting into the sort of specifics of these episodes and the characters and actors, what is it about this? Well, you said when you went into the publisher and they were like, well, you're really going to have to sell us, sell us on this one. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's a goofy title, yeah. which is ironic since you, you said you'd already done the book on Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But <laughs> they loved that show. I was like, okay, but that one is deliberate camp. Right. And, yeah. and you know, and, and Joss, uh, he had a lot of people try to talk him out of that title, you know, and yeah. they said, it's just, but he said, but the entire premise and tone of the show is in the title. You've got Buffy, sort of stupid, jokey, goofy, and then the Vampire Slayer, which sounds horror, serious, dark, you know, and both of them put together are everything that show is about. And so for me, the only way to convince someone is to make them watch it. Right. And, and, and that's what ended up happening. Now, the other thing, if there are people who are spoiler files and are listening to this right now and saying, no, I'm just going to watch along and I don't care if you spoil things on the way. Um, You know, this is a show that really, uh, what's the way to put it? It, 
Uh, I'm trying to put exactly the, the right way to put this, but it's it's one of those shows that just proves itself to get better and better. So if you're watching it for the first time and you're finding that season one is not what you thought Buffy was going to be because everyone's raving about this show, you just, you got to get to season two. And this is what everyone always said. If you can make it to innocence and surprise, you will be convinced that this is the greatest show of all time. But it is a bit of a slog at times in season one. So, <laughs> so I will give them that. So I, I struggled with... Um whether or not to make this a spoiler podcast or to keep yeah. it uh, new new viewer friendly. And obviously I decided to go with spoilers um, because so many of the guests I'm going to have on the show are, have like written books and written academic papers and all that. And it would be a waste of your, your remarkable talents to bring you on a podcast and limit you to talking about just <laughs> this 45 minutes. But I do know for a fact, I know of one person uh, who will be, is watching the show for the first time specifically so they can listen to this podcast. This is a backwards way of doing it, but hey, yeah. I, I know out of the gate that I have already brought one new fan to the world of Buffy. So I know that they will be listening to this podcast and they have told me, I've warned them it's going to be spoilers and they've told me they don't care about spoilers. But, uh, <laughs> and, and I've also given them basically the speech that you just said that it's, you know, it is a first season and first seasons are always about finding their, you know, a show is finding its footing. Plus this was a mid-season uh, replacement. Yeah. Uh, so there's only 12 episodes in the first season. So it's, uh, you know, it's still fresh. It's still figuring out what it's going to be. And it's, it's really quick. It's brief. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, um, it, it, it only gets better from here. And this, which is not to say there's not great stuff in the first season, but it is. No, in, in fact, if we all have, I've heard so many people now say that, like everyone to newbies always say the same thing. Just get to the middle of season two. And then <laughs> you actually are rewatching it. And you're like, oh man, season one was so good. <laughs> what was it about this that I wasn't because, but it's because that you've watched all seven seasons, you come back and these little nuggets that are in season one that he ended up, dropping these seeds in season one that later he just explodes with all these things. There's so much in these first 12 episodes that form the basis of everything that's going to be improved upon and just be made incredible later on. And, and I think that's why we, the rewatchers love it so much. Yeah. Um, I love this will be an, an advanced spoiler <laughs> for people <laughs> listening along, but uh, in your book, Bite Me, I love, like, under your individual listings for each episode, you've got the, um, oh, where is it? it it's the uh, the restless moment that oh, you, yeah. <laughs> you pick out for, for each of the episodes you, or, or any of them that are appropriate, you pick out the restless moment, which is something that, uh, for advanced listeners, you know, that refers to the episode restless which comes many seasons down the line yeah um and does a masterful job i think of oh. of doing callbacks and and pointing out all the little clues that were hidden now it's it, it is arguable how many of the things that are brought up in restless were intended actually <laughs> to be that much of a long game but it doesn't matter because it's all pulled together uh beautifully which absolutely it's kind of the next thing i want to talk about is uh, so yeah, this is my first rewatch of these two episodes in a, in a while, and uh, I was surprised. Actually, I was uh, yeah, I was shocked at how much of the series is there in the first two episodes. Absolutely. So what I want to talk about now 
is how well do you think that these episodes uh, realize the characters and the world and the situations that, that the series is going to be exploring for the next seven plus years? Like, that is an excellent question. And and it's one that I really thought about a lot when I was doing, I did a rewatch in, in 2011 that right. went on for an entire year on my blog. And so that was the first time I'd come back to it in several years since writing the books, which I'd finished writing the books in 2000. Well, I guess when the show ended. So 2007, that was when the complete guide came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't seen it in, in all that time. And so there were certain things that I noticed that they nailed right away, like the tenor of Buffy, the Buffy herself, Sarah Michelle Gellar seems to know exactly where she's going with this. And Charisma Carpenter's got Mm -hmm. Cordy down. I mean, she's so great as Cordelia. She just, you love to hate that character so much. And yet you love to hate her and you love to love her at the same time. Like she's so mean, but perfect. Um, Willow, is just great. I mean, she's exactly where she needs to be at the beginning of the series. Giles is exactly where he needs to be. I mean, so much of it that's right there. Xander is an interesting character. In the very beginning, he's so self-deprecating. He's so over the top. And Joss Whedon has said, this is the character I based on myself. You know, the kid who was the geek in school. None of the girls are looking at him. He just feels like he's not a man at all. And then he really evolves personally. He's the one character that you always watch separately from the rest of what will come to be known as the Scooby gang. But the rest of them have ways that they evolve within the group and as part of the group Xander evolves alone and that's the one thing I always notice with him he's always standing apart which eventually is um is explored in an episode called the Zeppo where he they show how apart he really is from the rest of them and it's an amazing episode that really shows who Xander is but you're not going to get that for a while right yeah yeah. like that's season three I think but it's in season seven like the final season in an episode called Potential where he finally sits down and explains how he felt back then and why you know and so it's more of Joss Whedon having to write later to somehow explain the earlier. And yet Xander, again, it's not that he's inconsistent with who he's later. He has so much further to go in yeah. personally and his self-confidence. Angel would be the one character <laughs> I would say. Just no. <laughs> That's not the angel we know at all. Like yeah. That is a really different version of Angel. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because the two... Um, I agree with everything you said, although I, I, I did think that uh, Xander um, is the one of the main characters. Xander is the one that seems like he's less of the character he's eventually going to be. Yes, he rounds out a lot later. Yeah, but um, the two, I think the two most striking differences uh, between the series here at the beginning, at least in term of, terms of characters and things that we know are coming up in the future um, are Angel, which you just mentioned, and Darla. However, <laughs> totally. However, um, Angel, for me, uh, like he's awkward here. Uh, David Boreanaz, the actor, is a little awkward in the character here. The character yeah. seems off from what we know he's a, eventually going to be. However, I find it a lot easier to sort of fan wank some of the inconsistencies <laughs> with his character. Um, then with Darla, who played beautifully by Julie Benz and only more beautifully as this as the series goes on. Yeah. But 
um, like Darla is really hard to square <laughs> with the yes. character that we eventually see. Oh, 100%. And, and that is something that, you know, I'm pretty sure that I, I was talking about even at the time. It never sat well with me after you've not only in Buffy, but in Angel, you know, yeah. and more so in Angel. Like in Angel, she is really developed and yes. explored in big, big ways. And later in the season, Joss, beginning at the end of season two, Joss begins to show flashbacks to long ago when Darla was first a vampire and that sort of thing. And when we know later, what well, you and I know now, but that noobs watching the first step, Welcome to the Hellmouth won't know is what a rich character she is and she's so one-dimensional in in uh, in welcome to the helma no one-dimensional just inconsistent with what she says like she's, she's, she's very subservient and and yes yeah. yes exactly especially to the master and later you see her just going see you later buddy i'm going out you know that was the way she was in the 19th century but now she's like whatever you say whatever you, and we know that's not darla that's right. not darla at all that's never been darla yeah Again, this is, I mean, allowances have to be made for the writers Absolutely. You know, learning these characters as they go. Not everything was <laughs> like for Restless sure. is a great episode, but it wasn't all uh, prophesied from the from the yeah. pilot of the series. But yeah, oh, 100 percent. Now, Angel, and he, Angel, well, just, Angel's yeah. sort of weird behavior. Like I said, I, I feel like there are ways to fan wank that where <laughs> like we learn things about his character uh, that seem heat to be contradicted by what we're seeing yeah. here but i feel like like in in these episodes he talks about how he's afraid well first of all he pretends that he's never met buffy or he's never seen buffy before. exactly and we know that that's not true we find yeah. out that's not true but i you know he's i feel like he's trying to play the whistler role right here yes and so he's trying he doesn't want to get too close to her um, no matter what his personal feelings may or may not be at this point, he does not want to, to like, he feels like it's dangerous for her if he gets too close to her. So he's trying to be the mysterious mentor. Um, and he says things like, you know, she says, why don't you go down there and kill him? And he's like, cause I'm afraid. And I, I know some people are like, well, that doesn't sound like the angel that we know. Yeah. Um, I think again, it's might be part of, he's playing the whistler role and just trying to urge the slayer into taking up, the mantle, you know, doing what she's meant to do. Also, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, he's aware that Darla is down there, <laughs> and the master, yes. like he has a history with these characters. So, it's yeah. And and we also, if you're if you're thinking of the timeline of everything, the whole um, is like two two years ago, or even a year ago, he was in an alleyway, right, living <laughs> off know, rats, e yeah. eating rats, and, and Whistler came along. So he was a shell of himself, and he's only barely holding it together here. But again, they didn't know that about the character, so he couldn't quite play it that way. And little things like I'm, I'm afraid actually ring truer in that sense, even though he's playing the confident role, because the actor himself and even Joss Whedon did not know that that was going to be part of the character yet. Yeah. Um, but I guess, like you say, we can sort of incorporate and try and find ways to <laughs> explain it away. Yeah. So uh, I have a question. On this rewatch, I was, it struck me that it, <laughs> I can't remember what my feelings the very first time I watched were. Uh, but on this rewatch, I was like, are they, are they trying to 
trick us into not knowing that he's a vampire like like is the series playing it off as he's just a mysterious character we're not supposed to know oh yeah. he's, he's a vampire what is your take on that you know what's really interesting is i decided to start watching it with my daughter mm-hmm. and she is well she was 12 when we started and we when that scene happened in in the alley she made some comment that well he's the vampire and i turned to her and i said what makes you think he's a vampire and i'm totally <laughs> putting her on you know and she's looking at me she goes because angels a vampire there was a whole show about it and i said <laughs> I said, it was about a guy who was a detective. Oh, nice. (laughs) And I'm totally stringing her along. She goes, wait, Angel's not a vampire? I said, you're thinking of Spike. (laughs) And she believed me. And so for the next few episodes, she had no idea that he was a vampire. And then, of course, when it's revealed, she goes, I hate you so much. (laughs) And she looks at me, she goes, how do you think I can live with you for 12 years and not know that Angel's a vampire? Like, she couldn't believe that she had gotten that so screwed up. But it was really funny to watch her face. Uh, terrible mother but anyway uh, <laughs> but I do think that's how it was meant to be played yeah um, do you think I, it would do you think it was played well I guess that's what I'm asking it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell question. now that you know yeah. without the context of a newbie it's hard to tell is, are they if really I, pulling this off or is it obvious that he's a vampire exactly exactly I mean he's in a dark alley he's in that horrific velvet suit yes <laughs> yes so much i mean you know she she mentions to one of the vampires that she can tell who he is right away because he looks like debarge and i'm like well look at angel suit (laughs) that's debarge but uh yeah he i i i don't know it's so hard you're right because you and i will never be able to turn back our perspective and unsee it and so i don't i have no idea yeah Wow. Well, what about uh, what about anything else that's not specifically <laughs> characters? Like, um, do you how well do you think this sets the stage for the series that that you know is coming? I thought it set it beautifully well, and then opened up the possibility to alter things, and which there are some things aside from the characters that do change later. Um, but even little things like uh, at one point. They said, they say, can vampires fly? No, they can drive. Yeah, you know? I love that line. I love that hilarious line. Because, you know, that, as if that's even scarier. And then it actually becomes this iconic part of Angel, where you always, like in the, in the series Angel, where he's always jumping into that car, and that becomes like the car. And, um, but the one thing that I find seems to be contradictory is the very notion of what a vampire is. And because yes. that's yes. so complicated, um, he he went for an easy thing, is that it's a demon wearing the skin of a dead person. But then it becomes so much more complicated yeah. that, and much richer. Because by the Dark Age, it's like, no, actually the person is still living inside it, but so pushed down by the demon, they can't get out. So they're fully aware of everything that's happening, but the demon's taken over. And then there's this idea that, in the case of Angel, that it can pop up or go down or pop up, you know, that sort of thing. And so that it's not that the person is dead. There's somewhere in there. And that is a far more interesting idea. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad. So uh, I've, I've hinted in, in sort of the promo episode for this very podcast and to many, many people over the years, I'm, I'm 
notorious at the the Slayage conferences for, <laughs> for talking about this. There are uh, there are some things about this series and some of these characters that I don't necessarily have. You know, I have some controversial views or, or attitudes about some of the things. Um, and one of those things uh, that, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, proves to be kind of an ongoing problem for me throughout the series uh, is just that it's the it's the convoluted and, and often contradictory nature of vampires in yeah. in particular vampires, but also just the nature of evil and <laughs> demons and all that stuff in the Buffyverse. But absolutely, uh, because like early on, and I and I understand why they did this early on. It's they're portrayed very simplistically. I mean, you you get the scene of Giles stressing to them that when you look at that vampire, that, you know, vamp Jesse, you're not looking at Jesse. You're not looking at your friend. You're looking at the thing that killed your friend. Yes. And all of that is to set up, is to make it um, non-problematic that, that Buffy and our heroes are going to go around, uh, kill, you know, staking first and asking questions later, basically. Right. You don't, right, you don't, exactly. you don't want to, at this point in the series, you don't want to, uh, introduce maybe shades of gray to that kind of thing, but that's right. Exactly. The problem is I love shades of gray and a ton of shades of gray are introduced into the series as it goes on. And, yeah. um, there are, I'm not going to call anybody out, but there are a number of fans in the Buffyverse that, uh, that do not, are not, <laughs> they, they don't appreciate the shades of gray thing. So they, I've had many debates with people who cling to this very simple black and white view of vampires and evil that was set up at the very beginning of the series. Right. Well, I mean, to use your term, and now I will be saying fan wank all the time, <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, find a way to explain that away, what I would suggest is because that directive, you're right in pointing out that it does come from Giles. And it's Giles who says, Jesse looks like your friend. It's not your friend. Giles comes from the Watchers Council. Right. And as we later find out, the Watchers Council doesn't seem to know as much as they think they do. And in other ways, they know far too much. But the one thing that none of them have ever done is to actually, in, for lack of a better word, befriend a vampire. Right. And so as you're going through the series, they learn more about the true nature of vampires that they actually just didn't know. It's not that maybe it's an inconsistency. It's that Giles has been given wrong information because no slayer previously has ever gotten that close to a vampire without sticking a stake in it. Right. And so... Um, yeah, Giles is just giving them the dogma that he's been... Exactly. Fed, exactly. Know. Just like in later in Helpless, he's going to be playing along with what he's supposed to do as far as he's concerned because the Watcher's Council says this is what you have to do to your slayer kind of thing right. and so when it goes it's it is angel later who explains um that this demon is in there still and that or that sorry that the human is in there and the demon is in there and they're constantly at war and they all do look rather surprised when this happens and i think that that was a really clever way for joss to evolve it but even after they discover that back to what you were just saying, they still try to explain away and say, yeah, but we should still kill Angel, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, we still need to do this. And so there are some characters that that has always irked me where, where they do know the truth eventually, but they still, but it's mostly because they hate Angel. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with, <laughs> you know, in the case of Xander, you right, know, yeah. trying to, to do that sort of thing. But so, yeah, it's interesting how you have to look at the perspective and how they're evolving, I guess, even as characters. 
Um, yeah, so the <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how quickly to get into this. So the uh, um, the other the other problem that I have, this sort of ongoing problem with the series that that just becomes more problematic for me as we go. Um, I again, I don't remember how long it took on my original viewing of this series as it was originally airing. I don't know how long it took for me to sort of fall out of love with the character of Buffy Summers. Ah. But um, this this is a so on my other show shows plural uh, my co-host and I we often talk about the fact that um, the the main character of a show a film a book whatever often not the most interesting it's usually right. it, it is often the supporting cast or or you know the bit players or even sometimes the villain who is much more interesting than necessarily yeah. the the blonde haired blue eyed hero of the piece so it's not surprising that. You know, I and and lots of people were more enamored of Willow or Xander or whatever. Uh, but over the years, I've just become like less and less of of a fan of the character of Buffy, not the show, but the character. And um, some of that, like the roots of what I think maybe some of my issues with her as a character, uh, I, I think they were kind of planted here in these first two episodes. So. Mm-hmm. specifically I have to be careful bringing this subject up. This is why I want you super fans as my guests. Cause I don't, <laughs> I don't want to fall into the trap of doing a, a podcast about Buffy, the vampire slayer, where I'm not a fan of Buffy, the character, <laughs> but um, like in this, in these episodes, we get the scene where you were talking about the debarge where she singles out the vampire by uh, the clothes he's wearing. And it's a funny scene that's kind of played for laughs because Giles is trying to get her to, to discover her slayer sense, her spidey sense, <laughs> which I don't <laughs> think ever comes back. I don't think that is. Yeah. A... There are a lot of like the, the fact that she can leap seven stories straight up. Yeah. Just by, it's something she doesn't do. Like, yeah. yeah. There's always, we're never sure what her powers are really, but right. So, so uh, I don't believe she ever has spidey sense again, but uh, instead of in you know using some innate Slayer ability, she just recognizes the weird clothes the vampire is wearing. Hmm. Funny scene, but when you actually watch it in context, at, until she realizes that the the uh, victim that is being you know hunted in that scene is Willow, she doesn't seem overly concerned <laughs> that someone hmm. is being hunted by a vampire. She's like, yeah. oh yeah, there's a vampire down there. Oh wait, no, that's Willow that he's about to feed on. I got to go do something about this. Again, a scene that's played for laughs and it's, it's setting up the series and it's building relationships between these characters. So, you know, I get it, mm-hmm. but I feel like this, and actually this doesn't just apply to Buffy Summers. I think the Scooby gang, all of the Scooby gang at various points kind of have issues with this where they really, they, they favor each other. <laughs> they favor themselves and each other over normal people let's say right um and that's in some in some ways you know that's realistic i mean these are teenagers no absolutely teenagers but it does it does you know bug me at times and it's not really a trait that ever kind of goes away i i remember feeling like at one point i remember feeling like there 
the series was becoming just an ongoing, it was becoming a series of epiphanies. It was kind of like at the end of every episode, Buffy or Xander or whoever would learn a valuable lesson about treating others with respect or (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) And then the next episode that would completely go away. And, uh, I don't know. I wonder, like, I could say more about this. I feel like they, once they, they solidify into the core, like Scooby gang and they are best buds forever. And they're bonded by these experiences. They go on to single out and exclude other people like Jonathan and, and whatever, like, like they become the nerds with power (laughs) that we're dealing with in the world right now. But anyways, how do you feel about that? That's a really good point. Well, the one thing I would say is so much of this show, um, and, and I find it more in this series than almost anything else. Every time we watch a TV show or a movie or read a book, we're bringing our own perspective to it. And we're we're lying our own experience on top of that one. And it's going to change how we see things. And that's why certain people gravitate to this character or to that character. I think in the case of a lot of genre television, you have people who uh, were the nerds in school or watching it or they were bullied in school or that sort of thing. And so that's why we would naturally gravitate to Willow. And we wouldn't graduate, gravitate to Buffy, who's seen as the leader, perhaps because we've never seen ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. And so we see ourselves as the willow of, of the group. And yet, Joss found a way to push that perspective and to write it in such a way that your perspective would shift and alter d- depending on who you were. And in the case of Buffy, because he showed everything from her point of view, I tended to sympathize with her because um, – and in my book is a perfect example of that. The number one criticism that I received when the book came out was how much I disliked Joyce. And the reason I disliked <laughs> Joyce, Buffy's mom, is because of the way he wrote the series. He wrote the series to be this mom who doesn't get it because that's how uh-huh. Buffy sees her. Now, Buffy sees her as a mother who, you know, at, the, at some point, there is going to be a point in the series where she says – Come on, Mom, were you just scrubbing the blood out of my clothes and assuming that was a normal thing to have on a shirt? You know, like uh-huh. that her mom seems to be willingly clueless, that her mom does dumb things like she's going to do in gingerbread. Like she just is is sort of that kind of person. And I wrote a lot about that. And people were like, no, I think you're a little hard on Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> but when I originally wrote the book, I was still like my late 20s. And then when I did um, the Buffy rewatch in 2011, I had two children. Uh-huh. <laughs> and suddenly, Joyce was a completely different character. Suddenly, she was a mom who in these first two episodes, um, her husband has just left her for what we'll find is, you know, he slept with his secretary and he has nothing to do with either one of them anymore. So he's abandoned her and Buffy. She's moved to a different town, is trying to start a new business. Her daughter burned the gym down in the last town they were in. So she's really got this big mountain she's got to surmount here and she manages to try and hold it together and she talks about how she's reading all these self-help right. books and, yeah. how do you, and you think here's a mom who's 
probably in therapy and trying to hold it together for this girl who just rolls her eyes and doesn't get it. And poor Joyce is trying her best. And suddenly I saw her totally differently. And Buffy is the one that we can now look at and go, you know, she, like what you said, she seems to be focusing on certain people. But also, you know, to your point, I believe that if there were, there was some massive crowd, like, I mean, I, I hate to bring this up, but it, it happens all the time, unfortunately. And I know this podcast is going to air later than when we're recording it. But there was just a massive school shooting that happened. And the parents who had to show up at that school weren't running in and grabbing other kids. They right, were grabbing yeah, yeah. theirs. These were the only ones that yeah. mattered, you know. And so in the case of Buffy, I think she would gravitate to the people she loves because she's lost so much. She's going to hold on to the things that she needs. She needs those people in her life. And where they push Jonathan away and push certain people away, they do end up getting their comeuppance when these characters then things happen later with these characters. It's like yeah. Joss does find ways to sort of show you can't just forget about this person you've tossed aside because guess what? There he is, you know, kind of thing. And so I find that interesting. But that's a really interesting way that, that you've seen. I've never really thought of it that way and in the way they focus on their own people over others. But it's true. Um, I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not hand waving away my issues with the character of the series going forward. I'm sure I will talk about this again <laughs> with other guests or with you if you come back. But I, I will again to to cut it, the show some slack because these are the first two. This is the pilot of the series. Of course. I mean, you're right. She's she. The whole premise of this uh, series premiere is that she doesn't want to be the Slayer and she's really trying to not play this role. And so she is a little sort of dismissive of the whole slaying vampires thing until she notices that this girl that she is, you know, developing a friendship with is potentially the victim. And that brings it all home. So, I mean, again, teenager, it makes sense for what's going on. It's just, a, yeah. it, it is a thing that rolls that That's carries right. forward with the character, but um, yeah, and I mean, going forward even even further with my thoughts on Joyce is when I was rewatching it in 2011. My daughter was seven, and my son was four. Now my daughter's 13, uh -huh. <laughs> and frankly, all they do is really think of themselves. <laughs> it's like no one else matters at all, and it's something I never thought I would say about my daughter. But this is what teenagers do. The world is doomed. That's right. The war, the earth is definitely too, yeah. that they will come out on the other side of that. But for those few years, everything is about them, you mm -hmm. know, because that's all they can think of. They don't really have the ability to come out. And when every once in a while you see these teenagers who have done extraordinary acts of philanthropy, you're just, we should be twice as impressed as we are really, because they're really battling these hormones and a brain that's saying, no, it's all about me. And so to be able to do anything beyond that is quite extraordinary. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, he really is depicting teenagers in a pretty, uh, you know, uh, accurate light in, in a way. So you already, you already said some words about charisma carpenter as Cordelia yeah. chase. Um, you know what I was, uh, taken Love. aback by here is how much, like the first time, the very first time we see Cordelia, she's being like super friendly and super helpful <laughs> to Buffy, uh, in the classroom when she's sharing her textbook and that, she continues like it becomes clear that she is being friendly to Buffy because she feels like they are birds of a feather. Buffy is just yeah. as, you know, important 
snobby, uh, whatever, mean girl as Cordelia is, but, um, or she believes that. But just that first scene, I was like, wow, that does not jibe with my memories of early Cordelia. The fact that she would just, <laughs> with a with a big smile, lean over and say, oh, here, share my textbook. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that doesn't seem like the Cordy I know from the beginning of the show, but... I always remember that that moment where she tries to bring Buffy on. And I would assume that, you know, the mean girls um, pull people in the, the same way any sort of bully would. They're very friendly and wonderful. And once you get in, then they become the military, you know, like, uh -huh. and because we know the way she treats Harmony and, uh -huh. you know, and, and yet she probably pulled Harmony in with a big smile and here, here, share my textbook until she knew that Harmony was under her thumb. And then she, she did that to her. So you're right. I mean, because when we will later see what Buffy looked like a year ago at her school, she was vacuous. She mm -hmm. was, you know, sitting there going, love you, love you, love to all of her friends. And, you know, she didn't love any of them. She was just that person. And it was only when she saw the darkness and, and, had the the weight of being a vampire slayer on her shoulders that she became a more serious uh, person in her life. And so Cordelia sees just the outside of that, love you, love you, vacuous person. That's what she thinks she is. And it's only when she realizes that Buffy will give a, a kind word to Willow that she realizes, whoa, <laughs> you know, she has the taint of nerve on her and I'm not going anywhere near the quick switch that Cordy has at that watering fountain yes. is so funny and so Cordy. And you're just like, Oh, there she is. You know, that's, that so, is such, that's yeah. such an awful moment, actually. I mean, it is, oh, it is no. funny. It is funny. And Alison Hannigan is a phenomenal actress. Even then there, there were, yeah. you could tell that she was just going to be an amazing actress, but that scene in particular uh, oh, it's so rough. It's so rough. Like I know. just the way Alison Hannigan Willow. completely withers under. <laughs> and we also, we watch her walk into it and we're like, no, 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 no. Like she says yeah. something like, yeah, my mom picked this out for me. And you're like, no, don't say that. And you just know, you know, yeah. like I see you've seen the softer side of Sears, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but the, the great thing about Cordelia right from the beginning is that even her insults are so brilliant that you know there's a great mind in there you know and mm -hmm. so she's not vacuous she's just mean and and so and that's why she becomes such an interesting character right from the get-go i thought it was hilarious to know uh, hilarious might not be the right word <laughs> i thought it was interesting to note that uh later in the computer science class yes. willow Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach here. Willow kind of flays Cordelia. Yes. <laughs> Just the tiniest, tiniest little hint at what may be coming with Willow many years down the line. Oh my God! If you listen really carefully, you can hear bored now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you just that moment where she says it's the deliver key. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so great. And that's you're right. That's where you see that maybe Willow isn't the wilting flower that we thought she was a second ago. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So much greatness in this. Um. So. Oh, so the series is famously about uh, about metaphor that uses. All of the it uses monsters and tro the tropes of horror and uh, like teen drama and all that stuff as metaphors. Um, so, mm -hmm. yes. especially early on in the series, um, I think things are played a little faster and looser than they are. So as the series 
progresses, obviously, fans like us began demanding or expecting more coherent, a more coherent through line. We wanted things to tie together a little better. But here in the beginning, uh, I think, certainly in the first season, not to say there isn't a through line, because there is. There's a beginning, a yeah. middle, and an end. But sure. But a lot more Monster of the Week episode kind of feel yeah. to it, and and every Monster of the Week is meant to metaphorically represent something like, do you feel, knowing that that's what the series is or was meant to be, did you, do you see that in these first two episodes? I do, looking back on it. At the time, I don't think I was picking up on that. I don't think you were meant to pick up on that metaphor right away. The, um, But looking back on it now, when you realize that the master and I think if I'm right, that we discover at the end of the second episode that the, where the master is, is underneath the school. And right. so the yeah. school is located on the Hellmouth, literally. Yeah. And the thing is, every high school student assumes their school is located metaphorically on the Hellmouth. Yes. <laughs> and this took it and made it literal. And so that's so amazing right from the get go and that, you know, that's where he was going with that. Um, the librarian. Uh, I love that the librarian is the like. I have, I spent so much time in the library when I was mm -hmm. in high school. I have no recollection of who the librarian was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they were just invisible in there, which is terrible because I mean, now I go to the library all the time and I know all of them, but in high school, I don't remember the librarian, you know? And so that he is so invisible, he can actually sit there and be um, researching demons and no one will notice. <laughs> it's the most amazing thing. And later in the series, he does all of her weapons training right in the library, knowing no one's going to come in. Like no one's right. ever bothered them in the library. And it's so funny that, that they come up with that. But for the metaphors of uh, a slayer uh, is a typical teenage girl who has the weight of the world on her shoulders, you know, a typical teenager. And I think it's, it's important that it's a girl more than a boy just because of both are going to go through puberty, but the way it affects a girl could utterly change her life, you know, in mm -hmm. huge, huge ways, whether it's teen pregnancy, whether it's complications with it, whether it's, you know, the way that they are now um, alluring to men and the, now they become uh, potential targets. Right. You know? And so there is a lot more on a teenage girl's shoulders in that sense and the way they see it. And so to put it all on her shoulders is so difficult. Every teenager in high school is expected to choose what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a horrible thing that we do to, to kids in high school. They're so young. And you know, I look back now and it's just like, my God, that responsibility thrown at me at that age, I could have made a huge error, you know, and a lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people do. And then they spend the rest of their lives having to make up for it or try to change it or getting stuck with it. And so high school is a really, really difficult time. And it's a perfect, perfect setting for this. I mean, I, I tend to... Uh distrust or move quickly away from anybody that tells me high school was their favorite time. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm like, all right, we're done here. We, yeah, exactly. we have, we have nothing, nothing we have nothing to talk about. Um, I know. Yeah. Uh, you were talking earlier about Joyce and uh, how she's like listening to self-help tapes and reading all these books on being a, the mother of a 16 year old daughter and all that. Yeah. Uh, she, I mean, she spells out one of the early metaphors here 
in uh, I can't remember which of these two episodes it was, but when uh, she said, I think it's the second one. I think it's uh, the harvest when Buffy is going to go out to save the world. And Joyce is like, no, no, you're not going. All the books tell me I need to get used to saying it. No, I realize you feel like if you don't go out with your friends, the world will end. I know it feels like that. (laughs) It's a great line. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. And it, you know, it's 100% true that, that, but she can't see it, but to every teenage girl, that's, the truth. And so that's what I mean when I say the entire show is from Buffy's perspective because Joyce rolls her eyes and goes, no, it isn't. No, mm-hmm. you know, and Buffy knows it's true. You know? And so it's amazing. So we have to talk, we've mentioned the master, but uh, I just feel like we need to say some words about the master and Luke, because uh, you, you'd said that you recognized Ken Lerner when you first watched the series. I, I don't remember if I recognized him back then, but I will, <laughs> I will tell you I recognized Brian Thompson straight away. Yeah. Um, and I also, despite the, um, I think, pretty damn impressive uh, makeup that he's under as the master, I did recognize Mark Metcalf um, yes. from Animal House. I mean, he's done all, he's been in millions of things, but of course, yeah. I, I knew him from uh, as a... Is it Niedermeyer? Was that the character's name? I think. In, I, was uh, gonna say, I think it is. Yeah. In uh, Animal House, and so at one point, in in this, uh, the master. Uh, where was it? I made a note about this. Uh, yeah, when he's when the master is dressing down his minions or whatever for letting the Slayer escape, he says something like, uh, "You're all weak." Or whatever, and I just, I really wanted him. I don't know why they didn't do, have him do the Niedermeyer line of "You're all worthless and weak." He could have delivered the line just like he did. In I know. House. And later seasons, he 100% would have done that. Yeah. I think that Joss was kind of maybe playing it safe here, but you're right. That would have been amazing. Yeah, but uh, so the series, uh, I mean, it only gets better as it goes forward with the special effects and the makeup effects and the fight choreography, which is still, it's all pretty good. uh, Yeah. Even this early, but uh, the, the masters makeup, like, I think they nailed that right away. Obviously not all the vampires that we see going forward are going to look like the master and, uh, and, and some makeup is better than others, but I really feel like the master uh, design is, was great from the outset it was and i mean he just he has this rat like appearance mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like this idea of a mole that's been living underground and hasn't come out in so long that he's actually transcended humanity or whatever it is they say about him and and he he is just perfect right from the beginning like the master is everything he should they've got that sort of nosferatu look yes, about yes yeah. yeah and they've really pulled that in which is amazing i always used to my husband and i are always joking about how bad the vampire teeth oh yeah <laughs> And we're always like, you know, when Darla comes in, she's like, listen, Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Yes. They really improve on that much later and they've got much better teeth and they don't they don't end up lisping the entire scene. And, and, um, I, and I feel like they, they either did a better job with Mark Metcalf's uh, dental prosthesis or he yeah. was just better at talking through it because I that's I never right. really noticed that problem with him. But yeah, Darla in particular, when she talks, I was like, oh, she's that's really terrible. <laughs> 
but she gets much better with it. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, and they, they really, it's quite amazing, to be honest, how much they get right. That there are so few things we can say, well, this isn't quite right in the opening, that they get so much right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, since I name dropped him, I just have to say Brian Thompson as Luke, I recognized him immediately because he's uh, he's an X-Files. I mean, he's he's a character actor that's been in a billion things. Right. But, you know, at the time he was known uh, to X-Files fans as the alien bounty hunter. So that's right. (laughs) Anyways, um, let's see. What else have we got? Um, Oh, I just made I just noticed in my notes here that uh, director John T. Kretschmer, who uh, directed The Harvest, he went on. I know he does other episodes of Buffy, but he's also done a ton of other stuff, including he was a frequent director for Charmed, which has some oh, yeah. some sort of similarities to Buffy. Absolutely. Uh, Veronica Mars, which obviously, uh, Veronica Mars, yeah, obviously <laughs> has some tonal similarities there. Of course uh, it does. Yeah. Burn Notice, which was a fun show. I'm not entirely sure I could draw some any parallels between that and Buffy. <laughs> and then I Zombie, which is another show I love, which I guess maybe yeah. has some. There's some similarities. Oh, for but. sure. Yeah. It's very Veronica Marzi too. Yeah. yeah. No, that, yeah. And, uh, I mean, the one thing that I was interested when I was showing the first few episodes to my daughter was, is she going to think it's outdated? You know, is there anything that's really dated itself in the episode? I mean, there's Cordelia in the car battery sized cell phone that she carries yes. with the big antenna she pops up. That's hilarious. But um and I remember when I did the rewatch, someone pointed out the fashion. The that the fashion and yet um while it certainly isn't, you know, twenty eighteen fashion that's from 21 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, and yet if someone walked into a high school dressed like that, I'm not sure that anyone would really notice too much. Whereas if you look at 21 years earlier, that's 1976. And yeah. if we were watching in 97, a show from 76, I think it would be far more drastic. The difference in, yeah. in the, look. Um, you know, obviously this was going to be shown even at the time. I remember commenting will the pop culture references become dated? You know, <laughs> the one that I love in this one is when uh, Cordelia is doing the quiz with Buffy, right. uh, and then she says, James Spader, and she goes, needs to call me. <laughs> and I'm like, still? Do you still think that? <laughs> I love that. I love that line so much. You know, it's, it's hilarious. My wife uh, grew up hating James Spader, uh, because of because of like the roles He's that he so played and pretty in pain He's yeah terrible. exactly she despised yeah. him and it's only been in in recent years some of the character roles that he's done recently that she's kind of a fan of his now so she she is the opposite of buffy like she would not have wanted him to call yeah. her back then yeah you yeah. never call me yeah um, well, it's, it's interesting too that i mean that was the thing that i think is why this is the TV show, despite the fact I wrote five books on Lost and one on Buffy, you know, this is the show that sits closest to my heart and still does all these years later. And I think so much of that has to do with the nostalgia that it pulls up that, you know, when you're watching the show, I was, uh, I was just graduated from university when the show came on, but it just pulled me right back into high school. It pulled me back to those John Hughes films. It seemed to be Uh very, very John Hughesy to me. And 
it was so nostalgic. People, you know, which is perhaps why you show it to someone who's pre-high school. They might not, you know, be into it as much as someone afterwards because of the nostalgia it created. Um, that said, my my daughter loved it, and she's not in high school yet. So, um, but I really do believe that that that's the one thing that people love. That's why so many people are drawn to the first three seasons because they're all in high school. Mm-hmm. Whereas then the next four are more difficult because they're sort of sort of adrift in those ones in a little more than they are. So, yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> there, there are also things that I, I saw that, I mean, I guess if we can be spoilery, but it, yes, no fire I, away. I, I saw moments in here that it was like, Oh wow. You know, like there's a moment where Buffy's lying in a coffin, you know, right, and immediately yeah. I'm seeing the beginning of season six right, right there. Or, um, that Willow is the character that, that needs protecting beyond everyone else. And by the end, she's going to be the opposite. Like she's going right. to be the one who takes care of, of it all basically. Or you've got, um, well, I mean the classic one where the, it ends with Giles saying the earth is doomed. Right. And you know that they're going to echo that line in the, in the finale. And then, you know, Xander, and like I said earlier, you know, you've got Xander, not feeling like he's a real man. And this is a real thing with Xander, that insecurity really sits with him for the almost the entire series. And and by season seven, he sits down with Dawn and explains what how he feels that way and why he feels that way. And you know, and and this insecurity of all these other powerful people being around him that he just had no ability to do that. And so there were so many little things that are here that you watch now as a seasoned fan and you go, Oh my God, you know, and immediately pulls up these emotions for what you're going to see later. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm fascinated as much with, uh, talking with you and all of my future guests, uh, on your thoughts and opinions and observations as I am with rediscovering the series for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Because yeah, I have like, I I have my attitudes and my opinions about this show that have been shaped by one one complete watch and then thousands of conversations with other people and yeah. going and going to the Slage conferences and reading all the books yeah. and all that stuff but I just wonder if like some of the problems that I had with the series by the end I wonder if um because because I've I do other podcasts and one of the podcasts I do is the avatar returns and Uh. I'm a huge fan of uh, avatar, the last airbender and the legend of Korra. And I had been before I did that podcast, but the process of doing a podcast where you, you uh, talk with other people and sort of analyze episode by episode in detail, it really, it really changed my perspective on that show, which I already loved. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I can't wait for the same thing to happen with Buffy. I can't wait to talk my way through this entire series and get to the end and discover that, you know, maybe I I missed something or I have a better appreciation for it now or also I'm, you know, 20 years older than the last time I watched it all the way through, so Exactly. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's it that is where I truly believe that Buffy hits you in a deep emotional spot that really says you're going to watch this show from a very specific perspective. And so when I was younger, I watched it and totally sympathized with Buffy and thought the adults were morons. And then I watched it when my kids were young and suddenly Joyce wasn't so bad. And, um, 
And then now that my daughter's a teenager, Joyce is a freaking hero. (laughs) But, but so many other things have changed, you know, your perspective on the world or, and I start suddenly adding backstories in my head that are never even in the show or the Uh comics or anything like, what is Giles going through right now? You know, that's uh-huh, sort of thing. Yeah. And I never thought of things like that before. But suddenly I'm just looking at everything so much bigger. And and yet it continues to be amazing. No matter which perspective I'm watching it from, it changes the show. Um, but it still is an amazing show. And, and that's what I love so much about it. Yeah. Well said. No. <laughs> so um, I think I, I don't... I feel like I'm running out of stuff to say. <laughs> is there is there anything we haven't talked about, or were there was there anything you wanted to to comment on? I think we got through a lot of it. Okay, we covered, we covered huge territory here. Yeah, right. no, right. I mean, there's, there's a lot in this in this, and I think that there there really is what becomes normal to us later is the idea of Joss Whedon undercutting our expectations. Yeah, and he does it in such a big way that it literally undercut our expectations in in this first episode two episodes we were just like what 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 whereas later you were waiting for him to undercut the expectation You're like, here it comes here it comes you uh-huh. know and he actually trains you to do that which is so great that he changed our perspective he changed the way we watched television because he showed that it didn't have to be cliched it didn't have to follow a certain formula so that now everyone's doing it you know you're watching a tv show and you're like yeah but that's not oh there it is you know like, mm-hmm. and you know now that it's not going to be the way it looked but you know for anyone coming at this for the very first time we really didn't have that mindset back then and so he could really shock you like in that very opening you saw two high school kids breaking into the school mm-hmm. and not once did your brain ever think oh darla's gonna be the vampire like not once did that ever cross your mind now of course it's all you see and, and <laughs> yeah. all anyone would see and if any show started off that way you're like which one of these is going to turn into you know like that's exactly how he's taught us to watch television differently yeah I think it's so much of it's right there in this, these first two episodes and it just gets better and better as the show goes. Yeah. So true. So oh, yeah. True. It's a much more difficult world for writers now. It <laughs> is. They, they have to live in the shadow of Joss Whedon. I know. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, Nikki, thank you so much for agreeing to be my very first guest on this very first episode. Thank you. This is so much fun. Um, I, you know, there, there are plenty more episodes to come and I have a lot of people who have quote unquote signed on to join me, but I would love to have you back at some point. So please, if there are any particular episodes in the future that you are just dying to talk about, let me know and we can throw your name on the list and get you back. Awesome. I would love to. Um, uh, in the meantime, where can people find you? How can people stalk you online if you want them to stalk you? <laughs> um, I used to keep a blog. <laughs> 
I've been so bad. It was nikkistafford.blogspot.com. And I still go on there when Game of Thrones is on. It's the uh-huh. one time that I will always be on. And we write, I write it with another person. And we do 5,000 word essays for every episode. Nice, nice. We usually get it up within about five days of the show airing. So there's that. But on an ongoing basis, uh, you're most likely to find me on Facebook. So uh, I think it's just Nikki Stafford 108 is, is what the extension is. But, uh, okay. but yeah, that's where I am. I'm also in Twitter, but just not very often, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that your uh, your 2011 rewatch um, marathon that you did. <laughs> um, I will provide a link to that as well. That's uh, I, I have a list of sort of resources here in my notes that I will refer to frequently over the course of this podcast, and your Great Buffy rewatch archive is one of those. So. Oh, awesome. Thank I'll provide you. a link for that. So much fun. It was it was a full year of doing basically what you're doing with this podcast where I was bringing on other people, but it was writing, not speaking. So people mm-hmm. had to write these things. And also there were a lot of noobs. And so I had to provide a second spoiler free and a spoiler. And so it was very difficult. Yes, um, yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So I'll put a link for that in there. And uh, also I'm... I'm toying with, I say toying with, but I, I'm 99% sure I'm going to do this. I, I want to, since so many of my guests, including you, Nikki, are published authors, I want to include in the show notes for every episode as I publish it, um, I'm go- I think I'm going to creatively, very creatively call it the library, and I will provide links <laughs> to uh, to like Amazon pages for uh, these various books. So like, nice. in your Thank case, you. bite me. and. If I can get it to work, I've been doing podcasts for 10 years. I've never tried to do this. I, I, I don't know why it has only just now dawned on me to try this, but I'm attempting to set up a, an Amazon affiliate uh, oh, link. Nice. So I'll provide a link in the show notes uh, to Amazon if anyone is interested and doesn't already own uh, Bite Me, the unofficial guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Click on the link. If you buy it through that link, uh, it doesn't cost you anything extra. It just you know, steals a couple of shekels out of Amazon's pocket and throws them into my little tip jar. So <laughs> nice. Uh, so that's that. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody at home for listening to this, our inaugural episode. You can find links to this in all of our past episodes when there are past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please do me a favor, rate us or write us a review. Turns out there are actually a couple of other Buffy podcasts out there in the world. Who knew? And uh, your kind words could really help us stand out from the crowd. So I'd appreciate that. Um, If you have any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. So basically conswithdead all over the place. Um, I've also set up a Facebook group, which, I, again, doing podcasts for a decade, it has only just now dawned on me that that is a thing that you can do. So I haven't <laughs> figured out how to utilize that yet. I, I believe what's going to happen is I'll post links to the the episodes as they come out on just the regular Facebook page. And then the group uh, is going to be where we have, hopefully, knock on wood, where we have uh, interesting conversations about questions that are raised in the episode. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm still, I'm 10 years new at this. So um, 
Uh, my next conversation will be with uh, Elizabeth Rambo, who is Associate Professor of English at Campbell University and a frequent contributor to Slayage, the Journal of Whedon Studies. Uh, she's going to join me to discuss episodes 103, Witch, 104, Teacher's Pet, and 105, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. So until then, ger arg, everybody. Ger arg. Ger arg.